Hello, this is Dirk Hare. I'm a partner in the Fox Rothschild Washington DC office and co-chair of the National Construction Practice Group. This is the third of a series of construction conversations with industry leaders that I'm co-hosting with Brian Pearlberg. Brian is head of AGC's contract documents program and consensus docs. This series came about from a few conversations that Brian and I had about trying to bring some new and innovative content to the construction industry generally, but also to highlight AGC and its efforts in leadership in the contract documents program that are produced by the team of volunteers at AGC. In this series of podcasts, we will be talking with industry leaders about their professional careers, their personal lives, and their AGC involvement. Our first two podcasts featured Les Snyder, who is currently leading the Brightline West high-speed train program in Las Vegas, and Tracy Hart, president of Tarleton Corporation. And we are excited to have Eddie Stewart, chairman and CEO of Cadell Construction and past president of AGC, join us today for our third program. Eddie, why don't you tell us about where you grew up? Sure, and thank you and Brian for having me today. I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Grew up in the Druid Hills area. If you're familiar with Atlanta, that's the northeast part of the city. Druid Hills is really adjacent to Emory University for our HEC listeners who know Brian Turmail. He's an alumni of that. Kid him on a routine basis in high school. We referred to all the students at Emory as Emeroids for obvious reasons. But grew up in Druid Hills area, went to Druid Hills High School, played football there. I was one of nine children, had six sisters and two brothers. I'm the oldest of the boys. So I had three older sisters, three boys, and then three younger sisters, quite a houseful there. But graduated from Georgia Tech in 1978. Now Georgia Tech obviously is a terrific construction engineering school. Did you always plan to have a construction as a career or was it at Georgia Tech that you really first became interested in construction? No, it was actually in high school when I developed an interest in construction. My father was in the car business. He was a district manager for Ford Motor Company. He traveled most of the week and was home every Friday night to give me my weekly spanking for whatever I'd done wrong that week. (laughs) And with six sisters, I had plenty of them to tell on me. But my next door neighbor was in construction. He did light commercial construction, residential construction. And he allowed me to work with him during the summers during high school. It was A good paying job, a lot better paying than McDonald's or any of the fast food restaurants. So I worked with him during the summers and got to do a variety of trades, carpentry and pouring concrete and stuff like that. So really got interested in construction during high school. But I guess John Portman was the impetus that was the rage back in the day, particularly around Atlanta. He had designed, of course, the Hot Regency Hotel in 1967 that had the open atrium concept. And that kind of changed the landscape of hotels. And I remember walking into the Hot Regency in downtown Atlanta and just going, wow, this is is what I want to do. This is what I want to build. And so Georgia Tech was a no-brainer. It was right there. It was well-known, respected. It was also John Portman's alma mater. And I actually went in thinking I wanted to be an architect. I thought that architects actually built stuff. Took me two years to figure out that wasn't the case. But that's really how I got interested in construction. Did you start out as an architecture major? I did. I spent two grueling years in architecture doing all kind of weird stuff, which architects do. And it was after that I learned that they don't really build anything. They have these visions and they expect somebody else to build them. So switch majors, only lost a few credits because the electives I had taken in architecture didn't pass over to the building construction school. So anyway, that's, I did have a short stint as an architect. Huh, I did not know that. Once you graduated with a BS in building construction from Georgia Tech, where did you start your career? 
Well, when I got out of tech and you don't graduate from tech, you get out. When I got out in 1978, the job market in Atlanta, Georgia was terrible for construction. So bad that if you wanted to sign up for an interview with any companies, construction companies coming into campus, you had to camp outside the placement center, just like you would if you were lining up for tickets to the Rolling Stones or something like that. So I camped out, interviewed with three companies, company out of Montgomery, Alabama, Blunt Brothers Construction was one of the companies I interviewed with and ultimately went to work for in March of 1978. They were at the time, one of the top ENR 100 companies in the United States, general contractor. They did a lot of government work. Most people don't know that Red Blunt, who was the CEO and chairman of the board, was actually postmaster general under the Nixon administration, which when he did that, just about put Blunt out of business because Blunt was doing government work. And when he went to be postmaster general, he put a moratorium on them bidding government work so they had to find other markets. But anyway, went to work for Blunt, started out in estimating, doing takeoff, and all my friends from college, when they got out and started working for other contractors, they were doing takeoffs of count items, doors, windows, division 10 items. When I got to Blunt, they had me taking off entire buildings. Blunt was bidding at that time the University of Riyadh, which was a $3.2, I think, billion dollar project. They were building a university in the middle of Riyadh, Saudi Arabia from scratch. It's like building any large university in the United States all at once. Blunt was working with WIG, a large French contractor on the project. But when I came to Blunt, I was doing takeoff of entire buildings, working with British quantity surveyors that, that were also involved in it because of WIG's involvement in the project. We checked each other's work. John Cadell was at that time president, I believe in CEO. He was the brains behind Blunt Construction. And Red Blunt was more the PR guy and the guy who really was more into the politics. Is that how Blunt got into doing work in the, the fairly exotic part of the world in Saudi Arabia for a Alabama company? No, Blunt had roots. They had done other work in Tabuk, in Beirut. They had a lot of international work that Blunt was doing even back in that day. So Riyadh was at the time and still is probably the largest single lump sum contract that was ever undertaken. So it wasn't out of their realm of work, but it was something that John Cadell really got him involved in because of the size of it. And also because of the size is why we had to have a joint venture partner even back in 1977, 78. Fascinating. I know you were at Blunt for a while and you mentioned John Cadell. At what point did they transition? This is really my favorite story to tell. I say it's unique, but I think there's a lot of construction companies that have similar stories, but none that I can recall, kind of like the Blunt Cadell story. Blunt got the project, Blunt won the University of Riyadh project. They made really good money on it. Blunt used the money, a lot of the monies they made on that to diversify into other concerns, manufacturing concerns, and they were very successful money-making concerns as well. In January of 1983, Riyadh was about two or three years in the works, doing very well, making a lot of money. Blunt was the peak of its game. And Red Blunt walked into John Cadell's office on a Monday morning in January of 1983 and said, I don't think it's going to work out, John. We're going to have to make a change, which totally floored John Cadell. And in a nutshell, Red Blunt wanted his son, Winton III, to become president. 
and it was hard for John to understand at the time, but he understood later why he did it. Negotiated a golden parachute for John. He was really too young to retire. He was 53 years old at the time. He really didn't want to go to work for anybody else, and he really didn't want to retire. And so he and Joyce, his wife, got together and decided they wanted to start their own construction company. I happened to be working for Blunt at the time on a job up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, oddly enough, for a government project for the TVA office complex when I got the call from John's son, Kirby. He and I were friends and had known each other since my early days at Blunt. So we started working out of John's house and was it was not the best time in the world for me to be making a career change like this. Rob and I had three children already with number four on the way. John really had no benefits in place though. I say I was just young and foolish. People say, oh, you must have seen a lot of foresight. I just had a lot of faith in John Cadell that what he was able to accomplish at Blunt, he would be able to do at Cadell. So went to work for Cadell, working out of the house. We started out doing government work, working primarily for the Corps, NAFAC, GSA, any government work, because you don't need a marketing team to go out and get the work. It's publicly advertised work. And if you're low, you get it and life is beautiful. So as Cadell grew, Blunt went down the tubes. Red, two years after he made his son president and CEO, fired him because while the construction was not doing too well, the manufacturing concerns were doing extremely well. But construction was hemorrhaging money. And then in 1994, 11 years later, Red Blunt asked John Cadell to buy the construction group. He wanted out of the construction business in total. Kept the manufacturing concerns because they were making good money, but wanted out of construction. And it was really a bittersweet experience for John and for Red Blunt. We took over all their people. We finished up all their work. It was a merging of the two companies. We knew a lot of people from Blunt already from our days at Blunt. So it was a good mix and a good deal for both Blunt and trying to get out of construction business quickly and easily. And for us with the need to take on more work and more people and more resources. Kind of vaguely remember that shortly after that is when I joined AGC and met you. So I do recall that it was a transition right at that time in the mid nineties. Right. So you've talked a little bit about some of the exotic places that Blunt was doing work and Cadell today is known as one of the premier U.S. State Department overseas building operations embassy builders. Why don't you give us some background on how you obviously leveraged the experience of Blunt and then the government work of Cadell into becoming such a significant player in embassy construction? Sure. The overseas embassy work that we're doing is kind of a niche that you're well aware of, Turk. It's not for everybody. A lot of contractors have tried it and not been successful at it. We paid a lot of dues to get where we are in it right now. Lost a lot of money on some of the earlier work that we did. But our, the origins go back to we always had that appetite for international work. Cadell did going back to the Blunt days, not just Riyadh, but Tabuk and Beirut and other projects that, that Blunt had done. International work is neat, sexy, it's different, it's riskier, much riskier than domestic work. You got so many other factors other than what you experience on a domestic project, but you have better profit margins if you're successful and if you anticipate those. And back in the day, a long time ago, State Department would build U.S. embassies through what they called FBO, Foreign Building Operations Group. This was the predecessor to OBO. 
And when they built the embassy in Moscow, this was really one of the first big jobs that Cadell pursued in the embassy program. And as you may know, that was a disaster. We did not get the project, nor did we build it. But the first attempt for the United States government to build the embassy in Moscow, the project was built by the Russians. And as you can imagine, was so full of bugs, they could never get them out where they could inhabit the building. So they had a competition to replace the U.S. embassy that was bugged basically tear down the top floors and rebuild it. We competed for that, actually joint ventured with our biggest competitor now. We were not successful in getting it. I think Parsons and Zachary ended up getting it. That was the first step of things the government figured out what not to do when building embassies. They narrowed it down after that to only cleared American contractors can build their projects. But the real impetus for embassy construction turned, I guess, in the late 90s when we had the bombings in East Africa. Just a quick lesson on embassies in general. I've learned a lot more about this and geography than I ever knew before I ever started any of this. Most embassy buildings that we have were actually given to the U.S. government as remuneration for our help during different wars, World War I, II, Korean War. These are beautiful historic buildings, usually located in the central part of any city. It had this open arms come to America feel to it. We wanted to have that presence. And then all that ended in 1998 when you had the bombings in Kenya and Tanzania. The world really became a different place. There was a congressional mandate to get our diplomats out of harm's way. And there's about 200 to 250 embassies and consulates around the world. I never realized there were that many. An embassy is going to be located in a capital city of a country and consulates would be located in a major city in that country. And this congressional mandate to replace them all with these secure compounds is what we latched onto. That's really what we've been doing and probably have completed about, I guess, maybe between 40 and 42 embassies either under construction or completed just in the last 20 years. And so beyond just the international work, what are Cadell's other key market segments today? People associate us with the embassies, they forget we do other stuff too. We have really three business units, the international being one, and that international unit is primarily focused on OBO work. We also have a governmental business unit, which focuses on federal work as well as state, county, municipal work. And that market is booming right now. Again, it's the federal side. We do core NAFAC, GSA, now Bureau of Prisons, any federal money. We concentrate on that along with state, county, municipal work. There's a lot of work going on in the prison market, both state, county, municipal, and federal these days. And then the work we have in Guam, we cover that in our governmental group, which you would think, why wouldn't that be under international? But it's we consider it domestic mainly because of the nature of the work and who the client is. So we have governmental, we have international, and we have commercial. Commercial is a private, I guess you would say, group. It's been stood up for about five years now. Focuses primarily on Fortune 500 companies. We're doing a lot of big distribution centers around the country, doing a lot of symbiotics automation of existing distribution centers out there other than Montgomery. We've got offices in Atlanta, Jacksonville, Florida, and Bentonville, Arkansas, which may give you some hint as to who some of our commercial clients may be, or one may be. So that's kind of where we're diversified in those three business units, and each unit operates autonomously. Well, Brian, why don't you jump in here and touch on, that's a nice segue with the commercial group to, to understand what's going on in, in the markets in the United States. Thank you, Dirk, and it's good to be with you, Eddie. 
I have a question. You know, a lot of people in the industry talk about our top three industry issues, and you've been a leader at AGC, and you've probably heard this before, but our top three issues are workforce, workforce, and workforce. What's your view on the workforce issue, and what do you think is most successful in providing incentives to attract skilled labor to our industry? Well, Brian, we've been talking about workforce since I had brown hair. You know my hair is almost white now. So we've been talking about this as an industry, as contractors for a long time. And it is a problem. It is a national problem, but it is also a local issue. And it's got to be solved, I think, on a local basis. Serving as AGC's president, I got to visit a lot of the chapters all over the country. And every chapter has a different approach as to how to take on this workforce issue. And I'm primarily talking about the workforce issue with the trades. We talk about getting young men and women involved in the supervisory roles as project managers and superintendents and whatnot. But I really view the workforce issue more as the trades issue that we just can't get good qualified tradespeople to fill the roles that are out there now. But I was encouraged by seeing how each AGC chapter in the different parts of the country are taking this on. There's a lot of things they're doing, but they all seem to point to the same thing. It's first and foremost, we've got an image problem. And I don't know if Tracy or Les mentioned this, but we first have got to get parents on board to allow their kids to go into the trades. You know, we all talk a big game. And when I say we, I'm pointing at me too, but none of us want our kids to go in and learn construction trades. We don't view that as a career suitable for our children. We want to send them off to college and get them a good college degree. But at the end of the day, not everybody is geared up for college. And we do them a disservice when we force them into college and get a degree that they can't make a living at or they're not happy at. So we've got to get the parents on board first and foremost. And then we've got to get these guidance counselors in the elementary schools and in the high schools pointing our kids towards construction. I got to tell you, I'm encouraged because a lot of the high schools are making pretty good headway in offering training opportunities, even in high school, these career academy high schools that we've got, I know, in Alabama and Georgia and throughout the Southeast and really throughout the country go a long way towards helping the parents and guidance counselors understand that there's a good living to be made in the construction trade. So we've got to improve our image. And I think we've also got to get the pay level up. We talk big game, but then we still fight over quarters and dollars in an hourly rate that we want to pay these men and women who are in this industry. And so we've got to make it so attractive that that they want to be a part of it. And I got to tell you, and I'll get on my soapbox, this is a problem only in the United States. And I can only say this because having worked overseas, there are ample skilled trades all over the world could staff any project we've got in this country or any other country. When a lot of the countries we go into to build an embassy, we don't take all Americans over there to build the entire embassy. We use third country nationals or locals to build a good part of any project. And a lot of countries have gotten like we are in the United States where we don't have enough qualified tradespeople to build their projects. So they allow us to get block visas to legally bring in these third country nationals to any foreign country to get the job done. We legally bring them in, we oversee them while they're here, and when we're done, we legally get them out of the country. Well, we can't do that in the United States, and I know why, but if we don't solve that problem, we're never gonna have 
a real answer to the workforce problem. I'll use Guam as an example. Guam is a U.S. possession, and we put it in our domestic business unit. But Guam actually has set up with the H2B visa program to allow us to easily bring in third country nationals to do that work out there. As you know, they're moving the Marines from Japan to Guam, building an entire Marine Corps base on the island of Guam. And they recognize there's not anybody on the island that can do it, or certainly not enough workers on that island. So they they set up the H2B visas where we can legally bring people in to get that work done. But that's the exception, not the rule. If you come to the continental United States or Hawaii or Alaska, you can't do that. You know, we're so enamored in this border security and immigration reform, and we lump all this together. It's really two different problems. How we want to physically secure access into this country is one issue. Whether you build a wall or you have drones flying all over the place or whatever you do, I don't care, but you've got to have some way to secure the country so that you know where people are coming in and how they're getting in. The other thing about who to let in is another problem, and it's one that is going to have to be solved, and it's a political problem, and I'm not sure that we have the wherewithal to solve that problem. I've just heard recently comprehensive immigration reform, which, you know, one party says that's code word for amnesty for all illegals. At the end of the day, I don't really care. I do, but I don't. We need workers that are willing to work in this country, in the trades, in our business. And we're not going to recruit our way out of this problem. We're not going to steal each other's workers and get out of this problem. We're not going to grow kids. <laughs> we're not going to have babies and grow them up and get them out of kindergarten, high school. The demographics are just not in our favor. We're going to have to approach the problem at some point, and I don't know what it's going to take, but that's my two cents on that. Well, those are some really good points, and I think I both share your vision, but also maybe your pessimism. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to unlock some of the gridlock that we see in Washington, D.C. to try to come up with long-term solutions. Yeah, Brian, I don't think until big government jobs, and I hate to say big government jobs, but until they can't get their work done, they're not going to solve the problem. And maybe it is when they don't have enough workers to get the big projects like the work at Guam. If they can't get enough workers to get it done, then maybe they'll make a change like they did in Guam. They'll have to do that in continental U.S. That's an interesting point. So we've talked about workforce. Some of the top issues that I've seen consistently that you and other AGC member companies are dealing with every day now as a top line issue is combating inflation, supply chain shortages, and more and more concerns and regulations about climate control. Let me ask you, how is Cadell addressing these factors and what's been most successful? Let's go with the inflation and supply chain shortages, because I think those two are pretty closely linked. And they affect every project we have, whether it's domestic or international. You know, we're all experiencing the same thing. Material prices continue to climb. Our subs and suppliers, their promised dates for delivery of materials fall through because of supply chain issues and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Their prices on materials are very short-lived. We're still getting prices on steel and even electrical that have such qualifiers in there that we as a contractor have to really scratch our head and put contingencies in our bids for the unknown, which is a lot of things we have right now, they're all unknown. Electrical switchboard, panel boards, these are probably some of the most problematic, but they seem to keep changing the materials that we can't get today. There's something new that we can't get later. We've found 
Ken Simonson's construction inflation report alert, very informative and very helpful, particularly for our private owners. And they get it. They understand it. They're hearing it from their other contractors as well. So they are more keen to look at economic price adjustment clauses in contracts. They're more understanding when we can't get switch gear on a job, which is going to delay being able to get the building open. So the private owners get it. It's the public owners that seem to have the hardest time. And I'll say we've even gotten some movement within the agencies. Dirk, as we were talking earlier, OBO for all their faults, they are on the forefront of actually inserting some economic price adjustment clauses in these big long-term contracts. Now, it's not an ideal clause. It's got so many caveats that the test will be when we challenge one of those and actually try to use it. But at least OBO is recognizing that. And the core, to some extent, I think, have started coming to the table about inserting that into the projects. I think in this market, we contractors have gotten smarter, finally. There's risk that we should not be asked to bear. We shouldn't be taking on these onerous risks that I can only tell you from Cadell's standpoint, we're walking away from projects where they want us to hold our price or six months or eight months or whatever. And there are still some of those out there. We're actually pulling prices on jobs that have been out there under consideration when price escalations do kick in and we see this is no longer a profitable job for us. So I think by contractors acting responsibly, I think that sends a message to the owners, both private and public owners, that this is as much their problem as it is ours. I agree with that. If you look back to the start of last year, the government was pretty aggressive in basically saying to contractors, it's a fixed price contract. There's nothing we can do. We can't give you relief. There's no remedy granting clause to do it. And you're right that OBO started to look to solve the problem mid to late last year. And in terms of defense contracting, the Omnibus National Defense Authorization Act that passed right before Christmas has a section 822 that everybody's keenly watching because it appears for many DOD and DOD related projects that are fixed price, there may be an authorization to pay for certain price escalation. So we're watching that closely. I don't know that it's exactly related, but keeping, I suppose, on the government regulatory front, what role is technology playing in the industry and what impact is it having on data security? And one of the things I know that government contractors who are in the construction space have been wrestling with what this cybersecurity maturity model certification or CMMC program is going to look like. There's been a couple of, I guess, false starts with the government. But how are you, Eddie, both from the national AGC leadership perspective and also Cadell's perspective, looking at what these new data security requirements are going to be? Well, we see CMMC as being the full lawyer employment act. You guys are going to be so busy. Again, it's the government shifting the responsibility for cybersecurity and the cybersecurity of our subcontractors all on us. You know, there's already a lot of technology that we can't really use on government projects because of the other regulations and security issues and whatnot. But this whole cybersecurity, I call it rules and regulations that are coming down, is going to have a tremendous impact on all of us. Not so much the general contractors, but the subcontractors, because they are the least sophisticated, least qualified 
to deal with this stuff. And yet the government's answer is, we'll just put it on the contractor to make it their responsibility. We can't simply flow this down to our subcontractors without some means to follow up and make sure that our subcontractors are able to meet these requirements. It's going to stifle the competition in who wants to do government work. And I don't think anybody has figured out exactly what the total impact is going to be on this. But just from the subcontractors we have talked to, the bigger guys get it, but it's the smaller contractors, which make up the bulk of most of our work and most of AGC's membership. They're the ones that are going to be left holding the bag. I worry about that technology in general, and I think that's really where this industry is going. It seems like we've stalled or slowed down at the beginning. We really embraced them before the architects did. Contractors were first on board with that use of drones and AI and everything else. I see contractors using it. I don't see a lot of the other trades within construction using it, but it just seems like we've hit this milestone where we're not doing a whole lot to promote it. And the larger contractors seem to, again, be able to deal with it while the smaller contractors are just waiting for it to trickle down to them. I think that's what's gonna help get young people interested in our business. I think it's gonna lead us to do more prefabrication, more construction offsite. I think you're going to have to because it's going to continue to be hard to get the workers on the site to be able to build these things. So while it seems stall right now, I really think that's the future of our industry, the role that technology can and will play in helping attract younger, new, brighter minds into our business. Eddie, shifting a little bit, we've alluded to that you've taken a leadership role throughout your career in the industry through AGC. I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about how you first got involved in AGC and some of the roles that you've taken on at both the local, state, and national level. Well, Brian, like everything else, I did everything backwards. I got involved in AGC at the national level before I even knew Alabama AGC existed. And I know that sounds stupid because to belong to AGC, you join a local chapter, and by virtue of that, you belong to AGC National. As I said, Cadell did a, a lot of government work, primarily in the beginnings, working for the Corps and the Navy and GSA. In the very beginnings, I had only gone to national conventions. I had not been to any Alabama AGC meetings whatsoever. And when I would go to the conventions, I would attend the federal and heavy sessions, maybe some of the building division sections. Building division used to have a lot of the governmental, I think the post office and GSA and some of those agencies under building divisions. Well, John Cadell said, Eddie, go get involved in AGC. And he wasn't specific about what or where or how. And since I'd only been a national convention, that's where I plugged in. And that's where I met Dirk way back in the 90s. And so I got plugged in. I joined the core committee, the NAFAC committee. I remember going up to... AGC's office over on East Street, staying at the Watergate Hotel between meetings. It was really neat going to building division meetings because they went to all the neat places. But again, got plugged in on the national level and got to meet a lot of sharp men and women throughout the country who showed up at these things too. I tell my people now showing up is about 90% of everything. If you just show up, you'll figure out the rest of it. But that's how I got plugged into AGC National was that way. Henry Haygood, who was our chapter exec for Alabama AGC, just happened to notice me and Robin at all these conventions. He says, what are you doing here? How did you get here? And I kind of relate it to him. So then I got involved at the local level. We have sections throughout the state of Alabama. I was president of the Montgomery section, then became state president. I'm a life governor, serve on the state board currently. And then nationally, again, going through the federal heavy division, I give 
AJC National credit for being a big part of Cadell's success. It made us a better contractor. It helped us. We made contacts. We made relationships, best practices. It's really been incredible. And quite frankly, when I first started going to these meetings and had a seat at the table with the admiral or the general or whoever, I questioned John at Cadell. I said, is this illegal? I mean, they're giving us all this information about what they're coming up with and what their program is going to be and how they're going to deliver their product. And he said, oh, this is good. So that's kind of how my AGC started. I got involved at the national level and stayed involved at the national level and then kind of backed into the Alabama AGC. It's just good practice. But again, it's all about the people. It's all about the relationships that you develop over the years that are just, is priceless. We talked a lot about Cadell and your background in AGC, but what's something about yourself, a hobby or something else that might surprise our listeners? Dirt, nothing should surprise anybody who knows me. I'm pretty much an open book. Been married 47 years to the same woman, my childhood sweetheart, Robin. We've got five kids. Number 13 grandkid is on the way in February. When you live in the South, particularly when you live in the state of Alabama, more so than when I lived in Georgia, college football is everything. And being a Georgia Tech alum, you've got to be pretty thick-skinned. Our national championship goes back to 1990 when we were co-champions with Colorado. Of course, we all know that Colorado had that extra play, so they really didn't deserve to be co-champions. But when you live in Alabama, you got to declare Auburn or Alabama. And I've got kids that graduated from Auburn, kids that graduated from Alabama. I've got one that graduated from Auburn undergraduate and went to law school at Alabama. Dirk, you know him. I just enjoy college football. I go to all the games, Auburn games, Alabama games, and go to all the Georgia Tech home games. I'm a lifelong Braves fan, and actually, I'm a Falcons fan, too, a lifelong Falcons fan. I used to go down there. remember going down there when you could get a seat on Sunday afternoon, and you could just about sit anywhere you wanted to. I was glad to see that Falcons finally beat Tom Brady, even though he's with Tampa Bay, and their game really didn't matter. But the other thing is, I'm I'm an old rocker from the 60s. I love all the good old hard rock, but Leonard Skinner is my band of choice, and Freebird is my national anthem sung best after a few bourbons. As we wrap up our third Construction Conversations Industry Leader podcast, what's the best advice that you can share that helped you become such a successful industry leader? The first thing I suggest to anybody, no matter where you are in your career, is find yourself a good mentor and pay attention. I was very fortunate to have John Cadell as my mentor. He is my hero. He'll be 93 March the 13th. This man built two world-class construction organizations. I don't think there's anybody that has done what he did in their lifetimes twice the way he did at Blunt and then at Cadell. But find yourself a good mentor. And before this was a thing, I think everybody has always learned that when you go into any place, you find somebody that knows what they're doing and gives you good advice and you latch on to them. You don't have to be assigned a mentor, you go find them. Secondly, I'd say you need to treat everybody with respect. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. When you go out and you walk the job, you don't need to be just talking to your project manager or your superintendent or your safety guy. You need to be talking to the guys and the gals that are out there on the ladders and the lifts. You need to be talking to the ones that are out there working and listen to them. If you'll just shut up and listen, they'll tell you some things that you probably didn't know and you need to know. And they'll give you a sense of how the job is going, good, bad, or indifferent. But they are due that respect. They're there every day. They know how things are. You just get told how things are. But they're the ones that get things done. And they know when things are going well and they know when things are not going well. So treat everybody with respect. And then lastly, 
And this has been my motto in life. Don't take yourself too seriously. I think Tracy said construction is a team sport. She's right. You're only as good and you're only as bad as the people you surround yourself with. And John Cadell taught me this, hire good people and then let them do their job. Don't micromanage them. Don't try to make all their decisions for them. You give them credit where credit is due. And more importantly, you don't beat people up for making mistakes and they're gonna make mistakes. But the worst thing you can do is browbeat, make an example of somebody who made a mistake. They know they made a mistake, they made a mistake. Now, what are you gonna do next? So that's just, again, don't take yourself too seriously. Make sure that you pay attention to all the people on your team. Thank you, Eddie. We really appreciated this. Brian, thank you once again for joining us. We are excited to host uh, with AGC this opportunity for AGC and industry participants to get to know some of the AGC leadership better. So thank you again, and we'll look forward to doing this again next quarter. All right. Thank you, Dirk. Thank you, Brian. Great insights, Eddie. Thank you.